If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome back to The Carol Markowitz Show on iHeartRadio. Last week, I talked about men putting off parenthood and delaying having real relationships. But of course, it's not just men who do this. In 2022, the average age for an American woman having her first child hit 30 for the first time. In the never-ending mommy wars of our time, one of the ongoing battles is the ideal age of motherhood. The shots are usually lobbed at older moms. They put off having babies because they wanted to focus on their careers, goes this assumption. And now they're, quote, granny moms who lack the energy to deal with children. I recently reread a Molly Finn piece in the Wall Street Journal from a few years ago that fired in the other direction. She argued that being an older mother is better than being a younger mother, despite the fact that she is indeed sometimes mistaken for the child's grandmother. Tongue-in-cheek, Finn called older or geriatric mothers jerrys and says they're better than younger mothers because they're tanned, rested, and ready for motherhood in a way younger mothers just aren't. She writes, quote, What about the stamina needed to keep up with a child, you ask? But we jerrys have the advantage of not being regularly hungover from youthful self-indulgence. We have only three apps on our iPhones, and we waited a long time for children. We're energized, focused, and almost always happy to see our kids. Also, we have watched younger folks make mistakes and learn how to conserve energy. End quote. I have no quarrel with people who have kids later in life. I myself am what used to be considered an older mother, though, of course, as the average age of motherhood moves ever upward, my ages of 32, 35, and 38 at the time of the births of my children don't seem quite so ancient. But if there was a way to redo everything, my ideal would have been to have children much earlier. My husband and I knew each other for a decade before we started dating, and that's like a lot of lost and wasted time. 
I used to say he was the Jerry to my Elaine, really minus the romantic beginning because Jerry and Elaine dated first. We were just friends, you know, together all the time platonically for a long, long time. In my rewrite of this history, we would have gotten together in our 20s and our kids would be heading to college right now. Older parenthood is hard, even as Finn notes, you know, fewer hangovers, maybe. Older parenthood takes its toll in so many ways. It's harder to lose the baby weight. You don't look a little tired when you don't get enough sleep. You look like the crypt keeper. It's harder to chase around babies, you know, who are intent on plunging headfirst into everything. And, you know, the lament from a young person putting off parenthood who says, I just want to live my life first, explore the world, do things. The shocking truth that's unknown to 20-somethings, including myself at that age, is that there really is no time when you don't want to live your life. I'm in my 40s and I still want to do all those things that people consider living their lives. I want to go out to dinner, meet new people, travel. My husband and I have been incredibly lucky that our children have involved grandparents. We have an amazing situation that we get to do all of that. But the older you are when you have kids, the older your parents are and the less ability they will have to help. There's this idea that There comes a point in your life when everything can pause for a bit as you take time off to have a baby, secure in your finances, and the knowledge that your career will pick right up where it left off. And it doesn't really work like that for women or for men. At the start of your career, you're new and mostly expendable. As you climb your career ladder, you take on more responsibilities, making it harder all the time to step away. And that's the thing about having kids. There's no right or wrong time to have them. Are you ready for a baby? No, no one actually is. And the truth is you're still allowed to do, you know, the things that we call bucket list, but now we refer to bucket list even not kicking the bucket, but having a baby. You're still allowed to go bungee jumping or procrastinate on writing that novel you swear you're going to write after the babies arrive. There's no rule that says you have to own your own home or have made partner at your firm. And you can have all the money and still be a terrible parent or have very little of it and win at parenthood daily. Aim for the parenthood winning and let the rest fall into place. The other problem with putting off parenthood, of course, is that baby making is more art than science. In general, a lot has to go right for a baby to be produced. You have to meet the right person. You have to be fertile. They have to be fertile. And even then, there's no guarantee everything will work as it should. So much of life is luck, and meeting the right person is a huge part of that. Putting off kids because you haven't met the right person makes sense. Putting off kids because being an older parent is better is foolishness. Coming up next, an interview with Miranda Devine. Join us after the break. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. 
In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome back to the Carol Markowitz Show on iHeartRadio. My guest today is Miranda Devine, columnist at the New York Post and author of the best-selling book, Laptop from Hell. Thank you so much for coming on, Miranda. Great to be with you, Carol. So I have an admission to make to you, and I remember the very first time I read you. I, I just looked it up. It was 2019. It was your third piece at The Post, and you wrote about how marijuana was a really big deal and that it came with mental health risks for some people and that it was becoming a problem in New York. And I remember reading it and being like, oh, I disagree with all of this. This is crazy. Who is this person? Um, and I remember being like, this is so square. And of course, I've come around to most of what you most of what you wrote there um so how does it feel do you get that a lot like people saying you were right that's so interesting um yeah look I, I don't know sometimes i guess people don't really like to admit that and you know i'm often wrong myself but um the drugs thing is something that i've been writing about for you know, more than 20 years. Um, I was a police reporter early on and I just saw the um, detrimental effect that drugs had, um, particularly on people at the bottom of the ladder um, mm -hmm. and, you know, kids who grew up with addicted parents. And, you know, if there was one thing I could do to wave a magic wand to cure a lot of the ills that plague Western societies, it would be to just ban, uh, get rid of illicit drug use. Um, and I think it's, um, you know, I mean, when I was young, I was just as susceptible to um, the sort of pop culture ideas about 
right. illegal drugs. You know, I, I joined some stupid, you know, marijuana legalization party when I was at university. You know, it was cool. Um, but when you actually look at the, um, the scientific studies that have been done, particularly on marijuana, which is seen as such a, um, particularly in America, seen as such a benign drug. Um, and you see that the very, large risks of psychosis um you know once once your brain has become psychotic has had a psychotic episode um it's more prone to them for the rest of your life and that begins the descent into insanity and you see it all around you in the streets of new york and other big american cities with homeless people who are homeless because they're mentally ill yeah i think you also you predicted in that piece what ended up happening in New York was that the full legalization has made it so the whole entire city smells like weed now. Um, and, and it, you know, people will say, oh, it was always like that. No, it wasn't. I grew up in New York. No, it was not. Um, you know, people used to be covert about smoking. Now yeah. it's out in the open. Uh, I think also New York is the only city where you're allowed to do that. I, all the other kind of hippie cities who legalized it, which legalized it, um, didn't legalize it to smoke in the street anywhere you wanted. And I think New York is the only place that's okay. Uh, so I think that piece was really, I went back and I read it and it was, it's really interesting, you know, how much I've learned in, <laughs> in just a few years, but how, how right you were about where New York was heading with that. That's interesting um, that you say that. Um, I mean, why did you change your mind? Was it just because you saw the chaos and yeah. um, disorder in New York over the years? Yes. I, I think I had that impression, like you said, where, look, I, you know, I used to be a pothead. I, um, you know, was very much into the idea that if we just legalized, uh, that everybody would be able to use it, you know, kind of the way that we have a drink and, yeah. um, it wouldn't be. I, just a problem. And I think that what we've seen, um, and, and you're right about the psychosis stuff too. I think that uh, there's a lot of research that has come out in the last few years that does make the link between uh, serious marijuana use and psychosis in people who maybe were susceptible to it already. Yeah. Um, but I just think New York, I've seen such a downward spiral. And one of the things is, you know, I just remember when we still lived in Brooklyn, walking by somebody smoking a joint in Park Slope, like, you know, 8.30 a.m. as I'm taking my kids to school. And if we saw somebody, you know, having a drink on the corner at 8.30 a.m., we would register that that's a problem. But because it's weed, it's sort of like, okay. It's really odd in America. I think it's a hangover from prohibition. Um, mm -hmm. I went to university at Northwestern in Chicago, actually in Evanston, um, a little bit north of the city. And um, that was the home of the Christian Women's Temperance League and really, um, you know, one of the, the early sources of prohibition and I think the ha and it's still a dry town I mean it's a university town but it's a dry town you couldn't get a drink that was very hard for me to wrap my head around that right. coming from Australia uh, to Chicago and and realizing that you know we had to go a long way to get a drink mm -hmm. um, but there, there's still this attitude I mean which is good I think uh, I know in Australia and Britain um, binge drinking, especially among young men, is a real problem um, and causes a lot of violence and uh, mayhem. Um, and so it, it's kind of a good thing that people don't get rowdy in in America with drinking so much. I mean, you can go to a Broadway show and they will give you a glass of wine, which is like as big as a bucket, mm -hmm. um, and you can have as many as you like, and people are not 
sprawling in the aisles um, <laughs> at intermission, which would happen right. in a lot of, you know, hard drinking cultures. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, that's kind of a good thing, but I think it's gone way over the top. I mean, the fact that um, the drinking age is 21 for young people, I know from my own kids who came to America on various sporting excursions uh, when they were at school that, um, that you know, what that meant was that uh, rather than underage drinking, which occurs in Australia and England and places, which is really, I think, fine, it's just experimental mm-hmm. uh, drinking with a legal substance, um, in, in America, because it's harder to get a drink, um, kids are smoking marijuana at school. Um, right. And, and that's, that's a much more problematic issue because, you know, alcohol is illegal and therefore you haven't broken that kind of wall. A child hasn't broken that wall. That's, well, I'm, I'm taking an illegal substance. What's the difference if I take a different one, like, you know, cocaine yeah. or heroin or, you know, meth or whatever. Um, and I know that, you know, for so many years we've been told about the reefer madness, uh, don't say no to drugs, Nancy mm-hmm. Pelosi, you know, craziness. and Nancy and Reagan, yeah. Sorry, Nancy, yeah. Nancy Pelosi, <laughs> the opposite. Yeah, Nancy Reagan. And, you know, so it's really uncool to be yeah. anti-drugs, um, especially if you're from that generation that grew up with Cheech and Chong and a lot of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the cool, or at least in the aftermath of that cool 1960s, 1970s psychedelic era, um, where drugs, you know, that was, that was sort of the thing that our elders were doing. And so by the time, uh, the next generation came, came of age, it was completely normal and it was, um, part, you know, hooked into music and, 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 celebrity and anything you wanted to do. And so we've had, I guess, 40 years of normalization of drug use and coolification of it. Um, And, and uh, I think it's been really detrimental to mental health. uh, And, and, you know, I mean, just to, to, to the culture, Um, you know, pot, pot, I know from my own misspent youth, mm-hmm. it just saps you of energy and enterprise. It's the most loser drug you could ever think of. <laughs> and it has this cachet as being just so safe, zen and hip mm-hmm. and, and safe. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I just think alcohol is bad. It has problems, mm-hmm. but it's been with us for a long time. Humans are going to need some sort of mind-altering drug. We chose long ago that it be alcohol, um, and it's relatively safe. Um, and I, I think we'd be better off just focusing on having fun with the one legal drug rather than, you know, <laughs> trying to supplement it with all sorts of other crazy drugs because there'll always be something new. And we now see fentanyl, um, mm-hmm. the ultimate expression of, um, you know, optimizing um, illegal drugs. And it's just, you know, it's lethal. Right. So I mentioned that that piece was from 2019. I think that's around when you moved from Australia to New York. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. July 2019. So we talk a lot on this show about people moving because, you know, as you know, there's been this migration in America over the COVID years. Um, But you made an international move and you did it before COVID. So how's that been for you? It's been great and weird. Uh, because of COVID, I guess. And, um, you know, I, I'm, I was actually born in 
Jamaica, Queens. So oh, really? I'm, a, I'm kind of a native born New Yorker, although wow. my accent doesn't, doesn't tell you that. Um, <laughs> and my parents were journalists. My father was a foreign correspondent and in New York. Um, and so, uh, you know, I was born here. We lived, um, you know, in London and we lived in uh, Tokyo for six years. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went to an American school. I had this very American, strangely American upbringing um, which was hyper-American suburban upbringing in Tokyo because wow. I went to an international school. Mm-hmm. My friends were American. Their parents were diplomats or uh, my best friend lived on the Pan-American compound. Um, and that was like the Truman Show. You know, it was behind, <laughs> it was a gated community with these manicured lawns and cul-de-sacs mm-hmm. and little American bungalows. Um, and, uh, and, you know, we used to, uh, you know, I read the Bobsy Twins and um, all sorts of sort of old American classics, uh, children's classics. I didn't know that it, this was bizarre and right. the real America had changed, um, <laughs> but we were living in this sort of cap- capsule um, of Americana as uh, sort of interpreted uh, through Tokyo um, in the 1960s and 70s. And, uh, and then, then my parents decided that, um, the family needed to, uh, sort of live a normal lifestyle, not an expat lifestyle. So they went back to my mother's home country, which was Australia. And that was a huge culture shock for us kids, my sisters and I. Um, how old were you? I was, uh, 10, 11. Um, and, you know, I, I just thought of myself as a, an American kid and mm. here, you know, speaking Japanese. Um, living this sort of strange yeah. international lifestyle. And then we were in the sort of the suburbs of Perth, um, which is a real <laughs> outpost in Western Australia mm-hmm. and among the sand dunes. And, uh, so that was, that was quite a culture shock. I remember my mother ushering my sister and I, who were both very indoor kids, uh, living in Tokyo, ushering us out for a picnic, which we just didn't want to do, but we Im- immediately encountered all these horrible creatures and came running back screaming <laughs> to my mother saying there were dinosaurs and blue mm-hmm. tongues and, you know, there were just lizards and, and sort of yeah. fauna and flora that we, we didn't enjoy. Right. Um, but look, being, being kids, we uh, adapted. Um, I almost overnight changed my accent. I remember practicing um, in bed at night how to so say funny. bath and not bath um, right. and so transformed. Uh, overnight and fit in um, like a good Aussie. And my mother, um, you know, born in a farm in Western Australia, very Australian, she was horrified um, by my accent. She said, darling, you sound like an ochre, which is like a redneck. And right. I thought, great, I've done it. <laughs> I've achieved my goal. And so, yeah. Yeah. Do you feel, I mean, do you think you'd go back to Australia? Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, our our grown-up children are there um, and, you know, we, we left uh, only for 18 months. I had mm-hmm. um, I, I lived off and on in America a lot. Uh, I'd, you know, gone to university, as I said, in Northwestern and worked in Boston, worked in Chicago, I worked in New York. and um, But then when I went back to Australia, I, I married a, a New Zealander actually, but um, he was living in Australia. And so uh, my, my married life has been... Um, in Australia. And our kids are, um, you know, very rooted in that country. And, and, you know, we have a house and a dog and the whole thing. And, and I only came to the New York Post for 18 months to cover the 2020 election. 
mm-hmm. uh, because it's sort of an adventure because um, our, pa- our kids had gone off to university um, and because my uh, former editor in Australia, a fantastic journalist called Cole Allen, mm-hmm. um, was the editor-in-chief of the New York Post and he asked me to come over and, you know, I thought it would be fun um, to cover this momentous election um, and uh, so we, we arrived sort of midway through 2019 um, and had about six normal months in New York at its best <laughs> right. um, before, boom, uh, the pandemic hit and, uh, and everything, the world changed. We're going to take a quick break and be right back on The Carol Markowitz Show. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Do you think of yourself as a New Yorker now? Are you like fully adapted or somewhat? I mean, again, you were born there, so maybe maybe you've been a New Yorker all along. Yeah. I mean, I've sort of thought of myself a little bit as a New Yorker all my life, only because Mm -hmm. my father um, was just such a, he grew up in New Zealand, but he was just such a 
a fan of America and um, used to read John O'Hara when he was young and um, was so proud to have a daughter who was an American and a New Yorker. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my parents used to sort of tease me about it um, and and sort of boost it. Um, so I always had a, a great affinity for uh, America and for New York, but um, but I guess now I'm here, I just, I, I don't feel like that. I mean, I feel very yeah. much, um, you know, a foreigner, I guess, mm-hmm. but I mean, I, I've, I've felt a foreigner wherever I lived because right. I was in a way. Um, and so, uh, I, and that's what happens to a lot of kids that grow up, um, you know, among a lot of different cultures is mm-hmm. that they're, uh, chameleons and can fit in anywhere, but also don't really fit in anywhere. So, um, I guess that's the very definition of a globalist. Right. Is what, what the, the Trump people I, won't, I won't tell anyone. Yeah, that's right. Well, so a question I ask all of my guests, and I think you're uniquely positioned to answer it, is what do you think is our largest cultural or societal problem in America, and is it solvable? I feel like you have a unique view, you know. I think if you live in America um, and, you know, you sort of just – used you like a frog in boiling water you haven't really noticed um what's been going on but mm-hmm. there's a really peculiar um leniency about um illegal drug use um in this country and you can see it um just legally so many states are now um legalizing pot or legalizing um other drugs and it just right. has become so normalized and um or, you know i mean this is a country that carries on about the evils of having two alcoholic drinks or smoking a cigarette or vaping. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet the really harmful substances that people are ingesting as a matter of course, aren't even mentioned. And, um, and, and it's, it's odd. I mean, I think it really is a, like a multi-decade propaganda mission by a global group of people who for some reason are into drug liberalization. And Mm -hmm. this is, you know, the World Health Organization has been doing it. Um, there's, there's been this push in the medical, uh, you know, field to, uh, sort of equate alcohol with drug, other drugs. They, they call it alcohol and other drugs, even mm-hmm. though one is a tried and trusted through the centuries legal drug. Um, and the other are illegal and we don't know, uh, exactly how they work on the brain. Um, and the addiction issues with them. Um, and, and so, and, and, and Americans also have this peculiar relationship with pharmaceuticals. Um, you know, I mean, you, you watch television, there are so right. many, nowhere else in the world have I ever mm-hmm. seen so many drug ads. Um, and you know, they they're just people prancing through meadows with daffodils and sunshine <laughs> and, you know, some awful sounding drug is going to transform their life, um, take away their pain, um, make them have happy families. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Americans pop a pill for everything. You know, if they're constipated, instead of changing their diet and eating yeah. healthily, they take a constipation pill. Um, you know, if they're fat, instead of not eating, they take a pill. Um, if they're sad, um, mm-hmm. they take a pill. Like it, life's normal realities that you, you, you know, that, that people through the eons have dealt with by changing their behavior or changing their environment or getting rid of toxic people, um, the American culture is to pop a pill. And so I think that's hand in glove with this, um, this illicit drug culture. 
And, and I think it again is just symptomatic of a spiritual absence, right. um, which is odd because I think America is the most religious country I've, I've lived in. It's certainly in, in the West. Um, and, uh, you know, people are, are very overt about their religiosity. Um, and almost to, to a fanatical extent in some quarters, um, you know, I, I admire the, the religious faith um, that Americans are, are happy to exhibit. I, I like the fact that their churches and their synagogues um, in so many places are overflowing, unlike, say, in Europe. Mm-hmm. But by the same token, I think, um, you know, uh, for instance, the sort of religious fervour around Donald Trump just seems to me insane. Um, there really are people who think that he's the second coming of Jesus Christ right. and that Joe Biden is Satan. Now, I like Donald Trump and I don't like Joe Biden. I think uh-huh. Donald Trump was good president and Donald, and Joe Biden is a complete disaster. But I don't, I don't see Joe Biden as Satan and I don't see Donald Trump as God. And yet some people do see that. And I think it, it sort of, um, unpicks their brain because they're they're not making rational decisions um, and they're sort of allowing fate to take over because they think that there's this existential battle. And again, you know, that's that's sort of the opposite of what I'm saying. And I think that there's such a schizophrenic um, attitude in America towards, um, you know, religion, spirituality. You've got the real godless crew who Mm -hmm. are looking for, anything to fill that spiritual gap. And then you have people at the other extreme who um, have just, uh, you know, allowed their um, belief in, in, in or their religious beliefs to take over their kind of rational selves. Interesting. It's funny that it's, you equate that to the drug thing, which I, I, I get, you know, it's people are looking for something, right? They're looking for something to make them feel better or to believe in, but you're right. It, it takes a lot more work to, you know, m- make the changes that will make you feel better instead of like popping a pill or believing in a politician or, you know, yeah. the rest of that. Do you feel like you live a public life? Like, are you recognized a lot? Um, I try not to. And I guess, you know, the great thing about New York is that there are so many people here and, mm-hmm. um, you know, everyone's fairly anonymous. Um and uh, there's a there's a pub that uh, a lot of New York Post people go to that we love, um, Beach mm-hmm. Cafe, and uh, and that's about the only place that I'll, I'll be recognised. <laughs> um, and I like it that way. You know, I I I've always been thought of myself as a writer. I now I'm on Fox a lot um, mm-hmm. as a contributor, and um, and you know that that changes things because your your face and your personality and people think they know you and right um, and it gives you a lot more I guess publicity and um and a higher profile which mm-hmm. every journalist or every media per- we're not journalists anymore we're media people is right. supposed to crave I don't crave mm-hmm. that at all I don't like it um, yeah and and I think it also if you're a writer if you're a journalist you're meant to be an observer and you're meant to be a fly on the wall and I think that's what I'm best at or have been in the past anyway. And, um, and I think when you become the story, um, you lose that and you lose your ability to, um, to write and to, to sort of reflect the reality that you see around you. Yeah. 
So you had this best-selling book, Laptop from Hell. You obviously have a very exciting and interesting and accomplished career. Do you feel like you've made it? <laughs> um, you know, my instinct is to say, um, oh, gosh, no. You know, I would never <laughs> be so presumptuous just to say that. But mm-hmm. to be honest, um, I, I have to say that, you know, so many items on my bucket list um, so far I've achieved and one was to write a book and to have it be a bestseller is um, just fantastic and and especially on a, on a topic I think so important was suppressed, mm-hmm. censored before the 2020 election and I think, um, you know, that the story mm-hmm. about Hunter Biden's laptop but mainly what it told us about Joe Biden and his corruption I think was a story that should have been known by the American voter and so it was a big thrill to be able to write that and 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 bring it to so many people um, and so that. And then, look, I mean, the most important thing for me and I think for all of us is family and um, my kids are now adults, you know, young mm-hmm. adults and they're fantastic. We just spent Christmas with them and um, and they're just the most wonderful human beings and I think I've made it because as a mother um, because uh, my kids are sort of, they're there. I mean, if I died tomorrow... Mm-hmm. I know they would be fine. Um, I mean, I don't want to. I want to. I want right. to be there for grandkids uh-huh. and and marriages yes. and and all the mm-hmm. wonderful things that come with adult children. But um, but I think in terms of making it, um, you know, I have a happy marriage and um, and and a great family. So um, that's that's I think crucial. That's what it's and, all about. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I've loved having you on, Miranda. Um, end here with your best tip for my listeners on how they can improve their lives. Thanks, Carol. Um, look, I think probably of all the wisdom that I've accumulated in my now quite long life, um, I'd say the only regrets I've ever had have been saying no um, to opportunities because I thought, well, I'm too busy at the moment. You know, I've got kids. I need to concentrate on them, etc. Um, mm-hmm. I think if you just say yes, things will work out. You'll be able to manage whatever burdens or time constraints you have. And when you say yes to one thing, other doors open. Um, there are so many opportunities out there. So, um, that's that's my advice. Always say yes to an opportunity. Don't put it off. It won't come back again. You always think that, that yeah. it will come back. It never does. You lose it. Uh, other opportunities will come up. It's not the end of the world. But I think just always say yes. Put your hand up. Um, life's for living. Thank you so much. That was really great. Miranda Devine, her book is Laptop from Hell. Check it out. You are fantastic. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Carol. Great to be with you. Thanks so much for joining us on The Carol Markowitz Show. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic Gymnastics, Cain Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.